Okay, we're going to begin our Christmas celebration tonight. But this morning, we're going to just continue on in uh, John chapter 11. We're going to go to John chapter 11 this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to read. In fact, can I ask someone else to read this to save my voice? Um, I don't mind to. Frank, are you okay to read it? You mind reading it? I've forgot to get my Bible. John 11, 1 through 16, if you don't mind. Are you all right, Aiden? Okay, it's not true. John 11, 1 through 16, Frank, if you don't mind. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Martha, that Mary, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. They thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go with him. <coughs> then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Amen. And the resurrection and the life. Amen. Thank you, Frank. Very much appreciated. <laughs> you know, just as an observation, it's got nothing to do with what I'm going to say, but that last verse there in that context, it says, Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Isn't it interesting that this guy is the same one who later on said, look, I'm not believing unless I see him, unless I see his hands and his sides. I, I can't believe that he's raised from the dead. Yet here he's saying, look, he's been to Judea. They've all threatened him. Let's go with him. If we die, we die. Let's go. It's like kind of two ends of the pole, isn't it? Sometimes we're like that, aren't we? Two ends of the pole. So confident at one minute and then... So weak in another. It's just an interesting uh, paradigm there. So we've witnessed already this kind of seething hatred that was deep set in the heart of the Jews, excuse me, against Jesus. And we remember at the very beginning of this Gospel of John that he makes it so clear that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him. They rejected him, out of hand. In these last few verses of chapter 10, we've not read them this morning, but if you look at them, after Jesus declares that both he and his father are one, 
Well, that caused some trouble for the Jews. I and my father are one. These, these men, there may have been women amongst them, probably not, but they were beside themselves with anger. They could hardly even restrain themselves. I don't know if we fully grasp the depth of what went on and actually still goes on in the Jewish mindset towards Christ. They literally seethe with hatred for him. So, so livid were these Jews that they began to pick up stones to stone him. Not tiny little things, bricks almost. They were willing to throw these things at another human being. And it happened quite often. I can't imagine looking upon that site like Paul did and just applauding it. You might think that some criminals deserve that, and perhaps they do. But can you really watch on? Can you get so angry as to want to pick up a rock and throw it at somebody? That is, you've got to have some anger to do something so wicked. So they were livid and they picked up stones to stone him. But we see, as in other times, that this was not yet his time to be seized and taken away. And so he escaped out of their hand. We're not told how, but he escaped out of their hand, out of the midst of them. Maybe it was miraculous, like when he walked through the crowd, when they wanted to tip him over the edge. He just walked through them as if he wasn't there. Having said this, and having realized this about these particular Jews, let us also be aware that not all Jews rejected him. Returning again to that first chapter of John and his own people refusing to receive him. You see, the text doesn't stop there. Here we find a conjunction. We find the word but, which connects the first part with the last. Many refused to receive him, it says. Many refused to receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Many of the Jews already presumed that they were children of God, qualified because... They were sons. They were descendants of Abraham the righteous. John the Baptist had assured them, and this gave them that this gave them no fast track to God. That they were uh, descendants of Abraham. That they were sons of Abraham. John the Baptist already said, "This doesn't give you any fast track to God." Indeed, he said, "God Himself could raise up sons of Abraham from these very stones if He wanted to." That doesn't mean anything. This self-righteousness, this reliance upon their ancestry was no qualifier at all. John identifies what and who qualifies to become a child of God. And who is it? It's those who receive him. Those who believe upon his name. Scripture is abundantly clear. 
It doesn't matter how nice a person is. It doesn't matter how religious, how biblically knowledgeable, how many good works that any of us may perform. If a person does not receive Christ, if a person rejects Christ, if a person doesn't believe that Christ is who he says he is, and indeed not only a person, but a nation as Israel itself, as we a couple of weeks ago heard. If they do not believe on his name, then what's the outcome? They cannot be called children of God. They don't qualify. It is to those who receive him and those who believe upon his name. Those who believe everything that he says about himself. Those who reject him. They don't qualify to be called children of God. So Jesus goes to stay beyond the Jordan to the place where John had been previously baptizing. Many came to him there declaring that John the Baptist never performed any signs or miracles. See, it wasn't seeing works of power. It wasn't seeing astounding feats or supernatural healings and things of that like that convinced these people. They recognized, they saw firsthand, they believed that everything John had said about Jesus was true. And we're told that many believed in him there. Not because of the works. He said, John, John never did any. But we believed what he said about this man. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. All the power is his. We prayed that this morning. God is able. How able is God? Completely. Unfathomably. Unendingly. Infinitely able. God is able. God is willing. And God does perform signs, wonders and miracles according to his own sovereign will, purpose, and design. But we have to be clear that it's not, nor should it be, power, science, wonders, and miracles that convinces that he is true, that what he says is true, that what he declares about himself is true. See, if we, if we never, in our tenure on earth, witness any kind of supernatural work of power that what we might term supernatural in our lifetime it should cause us no doubt whatsoever it is the word the double-edged sword that pierces our heart and soul by the power of the holy spirit at work in you that convinces you that jesus is who he says he is. It's that word by the Spirit that enables us to believe and brings many sons to glory. It says here that many believed in his name because of what was said about him. Those who heard John speak believed and they became children of God. And so at this point here, we're introduced to the beginning of the chapter 11 to a man named Lazarus 
his sisters, Mary and Martha. So Lazarus is lay there sick. Most likely this was some fever of some kind. A disease. The poet and evangelist Nonus of Panapolis called it a morbid fire, a hot and burning disease. And it appears by the context that we read that nothing could be done for him due to the fact that Mary and her sister Martha had called for Jesus to come, making him aware that their brother, one who Jesus loved, was desperately ill. And the text here tells us that Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. This is the Mary that we're reading of. She knew Jesus. Both she, Martha and Lazarus knew him. And they believed him to be who he said he was. And so they sent to him to make him aware of their situation. They knew what he was capable of. If anyone could heal Lazarus, it was Jesus, and they knew it. Now let's have a look at what Jesus said upon hearing this disturbing news of that friend of his who he loved. This sickness, Jesus said, is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Don't you see even there in that one statement, the sovereignty, the almightiness, if you like, of Jesus Christ as God. This that he could declare as he heard this news, this is not going to end in death. Who else can say such a thing but God? Any one of us who, who have been praying for those brothers and sisters this morning, we pray for them because they're sick. None of us can stand up and say this, this sickness will not end in death. But Jesus Christ could, and he did. But it's going to be for the glory of God. It's going to be that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is a very revealing statement. Where else have you heard something a little bit similar? Well, do you recall what Jesus said about the man who was born blind? Who sinned? Him or his parents that he should be born blind? Whose fault was it? Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? Is it the generational curse? Well, Jesus said neither. He was born blind so that the works of God could be revealed in him. And those works were revealed. And God and the Son of God were glorified in it. And that was its purpose. Not only its purpose to glorify God, but it glorified God through what happened to the man. In his health, in his sight, in all that came after it, even him being kicked out of the synagogue was glorifying God. It brought glory to God and it changed the man's life and his family. What is the chief end of man? I ask this question a lot. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Notice what's first. 
It's not that we just sit and enjoy God, but first and foremost, our chief purpose is to glorify Him. <clears throat> we may think that if our chief end is to glorify God, then God's chief end is to rescue and save man. While we must say that God's redemptive work is most glorious and to us is of eternal value and it is so very close to God's heart. But the end is not first and foremost or ultimately for man, but it is for the glory of God and is own great name that is what your salvation is for first and foremost it's not for you or me we are undeserving beneficiaries of god's grace we are saved first and foremost for the glory of god and for his great name and we just benefit from his wonder and his beauty and his compassion and his mercy and is saving grace for us. But the whole of the work of God is to glorify his great name. There are these two sisters sent to Jesus. And the message sent to Jesus was this. He whom you love is sick. John tells his readers in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus this is a statement of fact he did love them he loved them with an everlasting pure selfless love and yet when those sent by Mary and Martha to inform him of Lazarus sickness his first concern was the glory of God and that the Son of God be glorified through this problem I want to read to you um, a little article, I guess, from John Piper with regards to God and his own glory. From beginning to end, from predestination before creation to the final state of contemplation of the glory of Christ at the end of history, God is passionate for his glory. In the center of that history, the greatest event that ever happened, the death of the Son of God for sinners like us, is the demonstration of God's righteousness. The demonstration of his unwavering commitment to uphold and display the infinite worth of his glory as the supreme, all-satisfying treasure of the universe. The greatest news in the world is that in the death of Christ, God has made a way for his glory to be exalted and my sins to be forgiven in the very same act. God is ultimately glorified in us and we are ultimately satisfied in him and they happen together. Here is the end of the matter. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy ego, but an act of infinite giving. 
The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God until he gets it, but because we won't be fully happy until we give it. This is not arrogance. This is grace. This is not egomania. This is love. So Jesus Christ came to glorify his Father and to save sinners. Read John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer. What does Jesus say? I have glorified you. And I have brought these. I have kept them. He accomplished both of them. He saved sinners and he glorified his father. Now the title of this message this morning is A Strange Kind of Friend. For this uh, or the reason for this is because of what we read in verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. I remember a few years ago getting a phone call on the evening of a friend, brother and teacher passing away. I rushed out of the house. I jumped in the car and I got over to the house as quick as I could, probably not keeping to the speed limit, sadly. When I arrived, I was told that he'd passed away only a few minutes before I got there. Still sat in his chair, still warm. When my dad took ill for the last time in October 2015, my mum and all his children were around his bedside for hours and hours up until around 9pm at night when he breathed his last and he entered into his promised rest. The reason I'm bringing that up, the reason why I'm saying that, is because at one point early in my faith, I remember reading this verse we've just read, and my initial thought was that Jesus was a bit of a strange kind of a friend. The scripture here emphasizes that Jesus loved Mary, loved Martha, loved Lazarus. The word so here, again, joins the ideas all of us as human beings perhaps might have expected to read something like this now jesus loved martha and her sister and lazarus so when he heard that he was sick he gathered his disciples and went down to bethany that's what i would have expected to read just like i said when i heard about my father when i heard about my friend i was straight in the car straight there but Jesus didn't do that, did he? He did the exact opposite. He loved them. He heard that Lazarus was sick, and instead of rushing to his aid, he actually prolonged his stay in the place where he was. One lesson we must learn from this is that Jesus doesn't always do things the way that we would or the way that we would expect him to. God does things at times in ways which perhaps on first glance to us may appear to us very strange, very odd. That's not what I would do. I don't get that. I would have gone straight there. What are you doing hanging back when the friend that you've just said you love is dying and then you purposely stay back? I don't get it. But this is due to our limitations, due to our lack of understanding of the purposes 
of God. Jesus Christ is a wonderful friend. The best of friends. He isn't the strange kind. There is no friend so close, no friend so caring, so loving as our Saviour. The judge of the earth always does right. And as that verse which is so commonly voiced in times of uncertainty says, all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, I did. I did rush to my friend's house. I did stay all those hours beside my dad's bedside because I could do no other. I'm limited. I'm unable. Those I love will leave in this world and I wanted to be with them. And I was powerless to change any of it. Limited only to watch on and to trust the Lord and his great care. But this tells us that Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, is not limited. Not limited, one jot, one iota. He is instead limitless. No situation, friends, is out of his control. He is the one that could say, I'm going to stay back two days. This is not going to end in death. No barriers too hard for him to break down. Not even death. The Lord Jesus Christ purposely withheld from going to Bethany, to Lazarus, to Martha, to Mary, until Lazarus had passed away. He told the disciples Lazarus had fallen asleep. And again, in their misunderstanding, perhaps how we would think, they thought he was speaking literally. That he was asleep. But he made it clear as day for them. In a few verses later, as Frank read, Lazarus is dead. Can't be more clearer than that. When Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus was sleeping, he continues his metaphor by stating, but I go that I may wake him up. Only a couple of chapters back, the Jews are astounded that a man born blind was given his sight by Jesus. No one had ever heard of such a thing happening in all of Israel from the very beginning that a man born blind should receive his sight. If this was not magnificent enough, if that sign was not enough to attest to his claim of being the Christ, the Messiah, raising the dead surely would. And here a body had been laid in a tomb for four days. Four days. So it makes us think that Jesus stayed back two days, the tomb. He'd been in the tomb four days. He must have took him two days to get there. Jesus' body was in the tomb three days. At this point, putrefaction would not yet have started. But after four days, as Martha emphasizes, Lazarus had been in the tomb long enough for there to be the awful stench of death. When Jesus heard his friend was sick, he purposely stayed away until he had died. Rather than say he did it on purpose, I will say he did it for purpose. <coughs> this sickness was not to end in death. Jesus went to waking up, he who was sleeping. He makes another profound statement in verse 14. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad 
for your sakes that I was not there. What reason did he give that he was glad that he wasn't there? That you may believe. That's the reason. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. The outcome of this act of miraculous power was that both God the Father and the Son be glorified. And those that look on may believe. What was it that Jesus wanted them to believe? Had Jesus already been in Bethany when Lazarus had gotten sick, he would, no doubt, have thus been entreated by his sisters to heal him. After all, both Mary and Martha, after they met him on the road, they both uttered the very same lament to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, they said. I mean, that's great faith, isn't it? If you'd been here. And on one side, it's great faith. On another, it kind of makes you wonder that somehow they thought that distance was a problem for him. Because the fact that he wasn't there made no difference in the end. If you'd have been here, you would have, I know that you would have been able to heal him and raise him up. I mean, he would have healed Lazarus, I have no doubt about it, and that in itself would be miraculous. But how much more would their faith in him as their Messiah be confirmed by raising him from the dead after four days in a tomb? Because the truth is this, none but God himself can raise the dead. None but God can raise the dead. Not only this, but I believe that Jesus was also keen to bring comfort in the face of death with regards to the resurrection of the dead unto life, such as he says to Martha in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life, that's what he says to her. This is why he made reference to Lazarus being asleep. One commentator notes this. In the scriptures, it is used to intimate that death will not be final, that there will be an awakening out of this sleep, or a resurrection, as Jesus says. It is a beautiful and tender expression, removing all that is dreadful in death, and filling the mind with the idea of a calm repose after a life of toil with a reference to a future resurrection in increased vigor and renovated powers. In this sense, it is applied in the scriptures, usually to the saints. I am the resurrection and the life. He wanted to bring comfort in the face of death, not only physically, but also to show them that something greater was at work here. Now, we should have confidence in Christ for resurrection life. This is the true sense of what was going on here. And it's my prayer for myself and for you all that we can really begin to understand true life. 
Because even when we're born again, we sometimes, perhaps, far more than not, still live with an earthly mindset. This is all we've known. The only thing we really know is time, isn't it? We were born, we die. Time is imprinted on our minds. We still live with this idea of a beginning and an end. Birth and a death kind of outlook. I suppose in some senses it's hard not to think like this, seeing that we were born and shall, at least in a fleshly sense, die. But it's also true to say that for many Christians there is still a fear of death. Why, why do men fear death in general? Why, why do we fear death? Well, I think largely because to most, what after it, what comes after it, sorry, is unknown. <coughs> do I go on when I leave this place? When I leave this plane? Will I be alone? Will I be in the dark? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? What if I merely cease to be or cease to exist and my entire life just forgotten? Will I still know the love and relationships I had whilst I was alive? It is much easier to understand why people who don't have faith in Jesus Christ might fear death. That should be easy to understand. Think about those people we've spent our lives with. Think about your loved ones. Think about those graves that are visited. I used to be very judgmental when I used to see people taking their strimmers uh, and their cleaning products. And they, he, I watched them spending so much time on the graves of ones that they've lost, cutting the grass, planting the flower, cleaning down the headstone. Because I was a believer, I was thought, well, they're not there. What are you doing? It's a waste of time. I mean, not to a worldly person, it's not, because that's all they've got to cling to. They cling to their loved ones by thinking that doing that is going to bring them closer to them. And so I sit and I understand maybe I would be the same. But what hope do they have? What hope do they have that they will see those people that they spent the entirety of their life with again? So I understand that. But why should a Christian fear? We are not facing any kind of uncertainty at all. Martha had this certainty. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She took it to mean that on that great final day, when we're all judged, when the sheep will be placed on the right and the goats to the left, and that all that is wicked will be cast into the lake of fire, that Lazarus, and indeed all who are righteous, through the blood of the Lamb, will be resurrected. She believed that. I know that on that last day you'll be resurrected. She had this certainty. She had this faith. And Paul himself said he was torn about living and dying. In fact, his preference was to leave this earth and to go and be with Christ, which was far better. 
To live was to carry on serving Christ, but to die was to gain a whole new level. To be with him, absolutely, and to be done with the flesh once and for all. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this is what he said to Martha. Do you believe this is the case? And she did believe it. The question that Jesus asked Martha is the question that we need to take with us. Do you believe this? <clears throat> So many believers seem to still be afraid of death as though they were uncertain about what lies ahead. Clinging to life even when old and in pain and no longer able to do what once came easy in youth. Saints, Jesus has conquered death. You see it in this very act with Lazarus. He has conquered death. He rules over death. He went there and he defeated it. Death has no hold over him. And being in Christ, it has no hold over you. Death is not some dark, ominous shadow waiting to grab you and drag you away from life, kicking and screaming and clawing as you sink into the grave. It is simply one door closing on a battleground and another one opening to perfect peace, to glory. An eternal joy in the presence of the King of Kings and all the saints. And so, just as Lazarus died, was not an end in death, but its end was in resurrection. So, our earthly lives also expire. They too will not end in death, but in glorious Resurrection unto life eternal. And God the Father and the Son will be glorified in his saints. Fear not, brother. Fear not, sister. For just as Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary and Martha, he loves all who believe and receive him. He too is your friend. And though at times it may seem that he may tarry, he knows, he is aware, and he is working his purpose out for your ultimate good. We ought to learn from these verses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who shows us so much in what he did and who he is. And Lord, we thank you for those who you gave the ability to write these accounts down so perfectly, the inspired word of God, without fault, without error, and what we can learn from them. And everything he did had purpose, and everything he did was more than just an action at the time. And we see, Lord God, that as you love Lazarus, you love us. And as we die in an earthly sense, we too shall be raised to life immortal. And Lord, in that, you will be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to live 
in the knowledge that we can be certain of where we're headed when this life ends. I pray, Lord God, for any of us, which at times we all experience, that we have fear of dying. Help us, Lord. Help us to put our trust in you rather than perhaps what we think we may face. May it be, O oh God, that you are glorified in the death of your saints. And Lord, that we then go from that life, that battleground where we fight with sin on a daily basis, we fight with the flesh, the world and the devil, and we walk into that door of peace, glory and eternal joy. Lord, may it be that that we look forward to. May we leave the temporal in that place where we know that it will be cast into the lake of fire and consider and ponder and meditate and trust in that which is eternal. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.